Hey, I'm Sam Dover, and you're listening to City Road. Last week, we listened to a panel on endangered country and how we can best listen to Indigenous perspectives on the issues of development and land management. If you missed it, I'd really highly recommend going back and listening to that one first before joining us for this next talk. But this week's episode is themed around endangered communities and resurgent urbanism. It's another great panel chaired by Professor Nicole Gurren, director of the Henry Halloran Trust. We've also got Warren Roberts, the coordinator of the Redfern Waterloo Aboriginal Affordable Housing Campaign. Lena Nalu, who is the executive director of Diversity Arts Australia. Professor Joji Ravulo, the chair of social work and policy studies at the University of Sydney. And Shannon Burt of the Byron Shire Council. This talk focuses in on the issues that are dividing our communities, whether that be predatory developers, creeping gentrification, or the pandemic, which has only exacerbated many of these systemic issues. I'll let our chair, Professor Gurren, expand on this. Let me set the scene. Over the past 18 months, the social and economic fractures, which have long been simmering in Australian cities and regions, have really erupted under the pressure of the global health crisis. It started with reports of racism against Asian Australians early in the pandemic, then a wider concern and recognition, long overdue recognition, of the ongoing harms experienced by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Australia as the global Black Lives Matter movement prompted very belated reflection and wider expressions of solidarity across the broader community. Fast forward to mid-2021, and we see that our long-neglected housing market crisis, from the lack of affordable housing to rental precarity and overcrowding, has compounded the public health risks arising from COVID-19. As earlier festival speakers such as community leader Di Lee from Fairfield have pointed out, we also see that the experiences of lockdown divide across urban geography. In Sydney's case, this is the traditional fault lines of East and West. Beyond Sydney, we see the vulnerability and exposure of regional communities. When I first reached out to these speakers, to today's speakers to participate in this afternoon's panel, some of them actually hesitated saying that they didn't see themselves as urbanists. But having read their work and being familiar with just some of their contributions, I was able to say that they're exactly who we need to hear from. And if you in our audience live in a city or town and care about your community, perhaps you're also concerned that it's threatened or endangered by unsympathetic development, gentrification or ongoing disadvantage, then I think you're going to be inspired by their work as practitioners, activists and community leaders. And if you're a planner like me, usually focused on the technical aspects of city building and development control, I think you'll agree how important it is to listen and learn from their efforts. So I'm going to start with a question to Warren Roberts. Warren, you've done so much work around social change across your career, but I'm really struck by your work recently in leading the Redfern Waterloo Affordable Housing Campaign. Can you tell us the story of why Redfern Waterloo is so important to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and your efforts to ensure that the community, that that community is able to remain and more widely return to the area? I just want to first acknowledge uh, country where I am. I just want to acknowledge the uh, Gadigal Wangal country and pay my respects to the elders both past and present. 
Um, Redfern is, a, is the heart of the Aboriginal civil rights movement here in Australia. Um, it is a place where the idea of community controlled organisations, self-determination um, and social justice for Aboriginal and black issues in Australia. So it is more or less at the heart of Aboriginal Australia that we, uh, that all of our Aboriginal community controlled organisations that were established in the 70s, uh, highlighting issues of health, housing, education and employment, um, and also highlighting other particular issues that we care about, including land rights, um, sovereignty, that we've never ceded our sovereignty, um, and also uh, black deaths in custody. And when it comes to the idea of um, affordable housing within Redfern and the community, what we, like any particular issue that happens in your community, it kind of just happens. Development happens and you're trying to think, well, what, what do I need to do and how do we need to make it happen? So how it came about for the Redfern Waterloo Affordable Housing Campaign, um, I coordinate the Inner Sydney Aboriginal Interagency Network. Um, and one of the workers came to our interagency and raised the concern for um, and the need for more Aboriginal affordable housing within the inner Sydney um, and Redfern Waterloo areas. Um, and that's important because it started with us as the workers and we called a community meeting um, at the Waterloo Green. Um, and then from there, we organised with our um, historical Aboriginal and Torres Strait organisations um, of Redfern. Uh, we went and had a meeting with the Redfern Aboriginal Medical Service, one of the longest serving um, Aboriginal community controlled organisations in Redfern, uh, to call a broader uh, meetings to discuss uh, this important issue. Um, also in support of the Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council, their local uh, land council uh, representative um, of uh, a number of our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across inner Sydney. Um, and we started to organise, we started to get together and, and think about what some of the things that we want to ensure that is included when it comes to a voice for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people uh, when it comes to housing. Um, we'll always be campaigning for social housing for our, for our people. That's always going to be a given. Uh, but, we'll all, but with this new call for uh, affordable housing, we wanted to ensure that there is an inclusive approach uh, to include an Aboriginal voice in that dialogue. But what we also acknowledge is, you know, the continued displacement of Aboriginal people is not a new story. It's something that's been happening in this country since... Uh, you know, invasion and since, uh, since settlement. So what we're hearing when it comes to displacement is, is an old story and many generations of Aboriginal people have been continued to be displaced because of the development of this country. So it is not a new story, it's an old story, uh, but let's create a new way to be inclusive and open dialogue and communication and where we can have uh, our say and also have a seat at, at the seat at the table. The biggest thing that I wanted to bring to this campaign was making sure that there was open, um, clear, uh, open communication. Uh, one of the things I find in a lot of particular things when it comes to campaigns or issues is that there is no 
a consistency of communication. So no matter if we were talking to our local politicians, to uh, local government or state government, um, or even to our federal representatives, we wanted to be clear about how we would like to articulate our message. So we invited our local representative, Jenna Leong, uh, member for Newtown, uh, to coordinate all our political representatives. The best thing about politicians, they talk to politicians. So let politicians talk to them themselves. So we got a, a champion, uh, Jenny Leong, to coordinate all of those folks so that we can have a real clear uh, conversation directly on getting the support from our local political representatives. Um, and then we went and had our uh, meeting, obviously, with local government. And the saddest thing is, you know, you got the with the disagreements between state and local uh, government around planning and uh, all of that and the complexity around density and all of those particulars, what we wanted to ensure is, look, at the end of the day, no matter what the state and local government want to do, we want to see it at the table and we want to have our say um, and making sure that there's open communication no matter who happens to be the decision maker at the end of the day. So that was our clear message. Um, and what it has brought about starting this campaign is actually started a broader conversation about what does it mean to include Aboriginal, Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people uh, when it comes to uh, affordable housing or social housing or housing in general. So there's been a groundswell now of conversations, not only in Sydney, but right across the state of New South Wales. Um, and, you know, that has led to having conversations with a whole bunch of different organisations and community who are calling for uh, similar asks uh, in regional and remote communities of New South Wales. So at this stage, we, um, again, what we've ended up doing, we, to get the, to make it happen, we've not only reached out to our Aboriginal and community controlled organisations, which making sure that this is a this campaign is led by Aboriginal people, but it's also a call for our non-Aboriginal uh, allies out there and also local services, and that's including the youth services um, and other services around housing and local community organisations um, as well. So there's a whole uh, bunch of uh, folks out there that are supporting the campaign, and it's really great to see that we have that support and, and that call uh, to support the, the things that we're calling for. And again, like everything, and any, with, the, with any political campaign, it's, it's a, long, it's a long, uh, long journey. And, uh, you know, we're here for the, for the long term. And, you know, when you look at the specifics of the area of Waterloo, uh, you know, that development's going to be uh, over the next 20 years. So we have to have a clear, a consistent conversation um, around what does it look like to include First Nations people um, when it comes to housing. And look, what it has sparked is looking at how do we have, uh, how do we encourage our community housing providers who manage a lot of those properties uh, in uh, housing, uh, housing estates and looking at is there an opportunity to increase a percentage target? So I note that, uh, you know, St George Housing, uh, in support uh, with City of Sydney has made a commitment of 25% uh, for their new development on Gibbon Street. Um, and that's specifically for all, um, Aboriginal uh, First Nations folk. 
but also with our engagement also with our youth sector, uh, they've also committed another 7% specifically for that um, given street as well. So it has sparked this broader conversation that's happening across the city uh, to include um, First Nations voices. So again, we will continue to do what we do best and making sure that there's open communication, that there's an, a clear and an inclusive conversation. Um, and again, you know, all those out there that want to support our campaign or want to be involved, um, please just reach out to us. I'll put a link in the in the in the chat. Um, but I look forward to uh, connecting with you all. And um, thanks again for inviting me to come and speak. Thanks so much, Warren. I really want to congratulate you and your colleagues and, um, and say what an important step forward I think it is to start to see not only a, a really that really strong Aboriginal voice in questions of housing policy and delivery, but some really tangible actions such as the inclusion of Aboriginal housing in new social housing developments but also in private developments so you know I think it's a really important um, example of action. Um, let's turn for a moment now to Lena. Lena I don't think that urban planners or policy makers think or talk enough about not only the stuff that Warren was importantly talking about but also about culture and diversity in the city. So as someone who's been at the front line of all of this and based currently in one of Australia's cultural heartlands in Western Sydney, I want to hear your thoughts about these themes as well as maybe your um, wider work at Diversity Arts Australia. Thanks, Nicole, and thank you, Warren. I'd also like to start by acknowledging that um, I'm on the unceded lands of the Bidjigal of the Darug Nation and to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging and um, just tell you a little bit about Diversity Arts Australia, which is um, Australia's peak organisation for, um, for ethno-cultural and migrant racial equity in the arts, screen and creative sectors. And um, we exist because there is a systemic underrepresentation of culturally diverse communities across all areas of the arts and creative sectors. Um, and so we address this through our work. While we're a national peak organization, we also do producing. So a lot of our work is in the public sphere, but a lot of our work is also place-based and, and the place-based place-based projects that we work on inform our advocacy and the work that we do. Um, we always centre artists and creatives from the communities we represent in the advocacy work that we do. Um, and issues, I guess, issues in space, uh, of, of space cut across all of our work, both in the virtual and the physical sense. And um, just a few slides of our events and, and um, and, and to, to kind of break up my talking. <laughs> um, research tells us that culturally diverse creatives and communities are marginalised across all areas of Australia's arts, screen and creative sectors. So that is people from, who people who identify as people of colour or as being from migrant backgrounds, um, culturally and linguistically diverse or from refugee backgrounds. Um, a recent report that we did was called Shifting the Balance, where we looked at nearly 2,000 leaders across 200 
of Australia's leading arts, screen and creative organisations. And of those leaders, we found that 9% were from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. Um, when we comprise 39% of the population and more than half of Australia's major cultural organisations and institutions had no one in any leadership role who was culturally and linguistically diverse. So no one at the board level, at the executive level, CEO level or on their awards panels. Um, so we know that, um, I guess, you know, leaders are very important. Leadership's very important in the arts in terms of determining agendas, determining how spaces are used, who they're made accessible to, um, and who gets prioritised um, in those spaces. So um, for us, you know, issues of spaces and places are really issues of, of power and quite often who has access to space and place is a reflection of the power dynamics in the arts sector itself where um, there is that marginalisation and I love this quote from Tim Supfamasan, the former race discrimination commissioner that if you can see that if you're someone who can see yourself or someone like you on screen or in our media you've never had to ask questions about why people like you are, are left out and um, and you've never known the feeling of looking into society's mirror without seeing yourself reflected. We, um, we know that, um, so I'm going to talk about the context of Sydney and New South Wales specifically. So uh, we chose to relocate from CBD Melbourne to Western Sydney before I started in the organisation um, and to be in the heart of the communities who we represent, who are, um, you know, and to be informed by those communities. Um, despite half of the population of Sydney living in Western Sydney and it being home to the most culturally diverse communities in New South Wales, the major cultural institutions and infrastructure aren't based in Western Sydney, but in the CBD and the East. Um, and there's a lack of affordable and available state-owned art spaces for groups and organisations in Western Sydney. So a reliance on local government and other bodies. So over the years, over my 20, 25 years of working in Western Sydney, I've relied on churches, on unions, on um, park trusts to provide us with, you know, kind of subsidised or in-kind rent in the absence of having that state support. Um, it's really important, we know, for communities to create their own spaces. And this is what we're hearing again and again in the work that we're doing at Diversity Arts Australia around the country. But also it's something that, um, you know, I've been informed by by my work in Western Sydney um, prior to this over most of my career. So um, around 10 years ago now, I was the CEO of Information and Cultural Exchange, or ICE for short, which is a Western Sydney-based arts organisation based in Parramatta and one of my um, projects there was to develop the organization's premises to, it was a capital works project to develop a, an old building owned by the Catholic Church into the new space for information and cultural exchange which includes a um, an arts and digital media hub and it's no kind of coincidence probably that diversity arts when looking for a space to be relocated ended up being based within the hub space of information and cultural exchange. Um, I knew then as I do now, um, how important it is for communities to have their own self-determined creative spaces and to be able to have access to, to, to making, to resources, to studio rooms or whatever, whatever it might be that when 
when artists and creatives are excluded from those mainstream spaces, then um, they're not able to kind of basically create, um, create works on their own terms. I think of some of the organisations that, that have set up in recent years in Western Sydney, the Arab Theatre Studio, um, not all in Western Sydney, some in the Inner West, Refugee Art Project, Phoenix Eye, which is an amazing female Asian-led um, video production house and training space, Sweatshop Literacy Movement, Creatives of Colour. They're all examples of self-determined art spaces that have been established by people of colour that are both physical and that are also communities of practice. Um, and these spaces act as cultural markers. They say we exist, we're here to stay, um, and that they, they also, um, just to go, like they're also always precarious. And so I thought about two examples. One is um, about a year ago, the Refugee Art Project, which is based in a premises in Ashfield and um, owned by Inner West Council were, were kind of under threat because um, the local soccer club wanted to move into, into that space. And I think about um, the precarity of all of the spaces of, of, the, of the places that I've, that I've kind of mentioned because they don't have that support. Um, we also know that communities really um, want to have safe spaces where they determine the agenda and the engagement. And, and quite often, um, I feel like I've I've missed these pictures, but that's all cool because what I what I what I found is that um, in increasingly um, marginalised communities are sidestepping mainstream spaces and deciding that it's actually just not worth the the energy that it takes to change these structures when they can actually create spaces that are safe and empowered and um, and provide support to them where a lot of you know what. What we hear from our research is how um, unsafe a lot of these spaces are and, and also, um, yeah, just how damaging they can be and um, for, for a lot of artists and communities. So uh, I wanted to just briefly mention a project that Diversity Arts Australia has been uh, leading for the last three years, which is called Storycasters. It's an example of a place-specific project which has been really dependent on us having a physical space, a social space. Um, it's, it's, it's run over three years and been supported by Create New South Wales and Multicultural New South Wales. We have a, um, a cohort of 65 young people of colour from across Western Sydney who we've been working with to develop industry skills and career pathways in podcasting, radio, screen, writing and sound production. And there's been some amazing outcomes as a result of gathering these people together. So paid work, publishing and broadcasting, the creation of new content and new work through collaborations. And thanks to being based at ICE, which has a recording studio, a um, kind of computer rooms, green screen room, um, equipment and software, we've been they've been able to kind of access a lot of resources and a physical space that um, a lot of these people weren't previously able to to, to access um, and um, also that intangible resource of connection because in the arts and creative sectors it's very much about making those those connections with other people that lead to a lot of creative partnerships and and work as um, our project producer Sonia Merman says 
if you're white, Anglo, middle class, you're going to art school, well, that's your opportunity to network. And that's what art school's for. That's what film school's for. You all hang out. Oops. <laughs> you all hang out in one shared space and that's where you spitball and make your connections. So with Storycasters, we're making up for that space for people of colour who are self-taught, who are forced to grab one-off free opportunities where they can. We're trying to build that community of practice that will support a career. Um, it's and, and one of our Storycasters um, cohort members, um, Nora Masigi, says it really well she said it's a really difficult thing to explain to people who've never been through it you get into a room and maybe someone says something racist and it's so accepted it's not even seen when I worked with people of color they just got it I did not have to say a word you can just look at it look each other in the eyes and it's like you get it I get it we get it um so um <laughs> so I guess you know, Storycasters has continued to grow even during two years of, you know, in and out of lockdown. Um, and the cohort is still creating work together. Um, and, you know, this work wouldn't have been possible without the physical the physical space that's, that they've been able to kind of meet in initially, the equipment they've been able to use, the spaces that they were able to use. Um, and there's no replacement, I think, for that physical space, even though the virtual spaces are also very important. Um, and what's really exciting about this is that the Storycasters is continuing us continuing on without us, without our facilitation. It's kind of taken on a life a life of its own. Um, that's that's all I think, you know, hopefully I'll contribute to the other other conversations, but hopefully that gives you a little bit of a idea of the work that we do. Yeah, that's really wonderful, Lena. Thank you. And look from if the, if ever there was a need to be reminded of the importance of the cultural sector to the life and of the city and to the well-being of urban and regional communities. It's been the last 18 months. I mean, it's cultural practitioners in the cultural sector has been both so hardly hit by the pandemic, but also so important to all of us in terms of, you know, keeping us entertained. And it's certainly going to be really critical to our economic recovery know both in the city but also um, more widely and I'm really struck by those cultural spaces that you described because we know that those cultural industries are moving into sort of the former traditional industrial sectors and industrial uh, spaces you know including around where I am um, Marrickville, Sydenham and we know from cities overseas as well as in Australia that they actually become so critical to both um, you know creating local dynamism but also um, really economic opportunities as well. But now it's time to move over to Professor Chiuchi Ravulo, who firstly, I'd like to congratulate you, um, Chiuchi, if I may, on your appointment as Australia's first Pacifica professor. And I'm sure many people will have actually caught some of the really important media work that um, Professor Ravulo has been doing lately as well. But your academic discipline, of course, is social work, which I think actually has really important and often very untapped ties to urban planning. And across your own career, I know that you're really about inclusive communities, which is something that I feel very strongly about in my own work too. So drawing on your research, your teaching and your practice, 
Could you talk us through your thoughts on our theme of endangered communities, as well as the strong social capital and the strategies of resistance that many of the communities that you've worked in have developed? Thanks, Nicole. Thanks for the invitation. And I'm very um, glad to be on a panel alongside yourself, Warren, uh, Lena and uh, Shannon. G'day, everyone. My name is Chocha Ravulo, and uh, I too would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands in which we are all zooming in from. For me, I'm the lands of the Darawal people in southwestern Sydney and uh, acknowledge also that the lands in which we are zooming in from are still considered stolen as sovereignty was never ceded. And to further reiterate an ongoing commitment to work collaboratively with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. I come from a Pacific Indigenous uh, heritage, my father's Itol K Fijian. And uh, for me, being in this Australian landscape and space where I was born and raised, I have uh, come to learn the importance of diversity and the importance that that has, especially in creating inclusive societies. And I think if we are truly going to create inclusive societies, cultural diversity and its differences need to be part of that conversation. And if we are going to create societies that are fair and just, we need to ensure that we acknowledge that there is injustice. So, I've got a like a one little slide. I've got one slide there. And I'm just going to quickly unpack that. And as you can see here, I've labelled the various areas in a colour. The, the blue represents my sea. The, the green represents my land. The, the yellow represents my sun. Then there's the space and play. So each of those areas, I've made it a bit academic as well. It represents my axiology, my epistemology, my ontology, my methodology, and my ecology, the, the spaces in which I also traverse. And um, I'm hoping that through our shared ongoing conversation today that we do see the importance uh, from the different disciplines that we come from in being able to promote inclusive societies. So I'll start by again acknowledging that injustices do exist that they are part of our communities. And we cannot not acknowledge them if we're not going to then move forward as a society. So we need to actually recognise that there are those injustices. And a lot of the time, those injustices are in space and place because of neo-colonialism and dominant discourses. This idea that there is one particular way that is correct, white is right, West is best, this, this, this status quo that continues to permeate our shared conversations and anything outside of that is considered as the other, is considered as over there and not relevant. And uh, I completely disagree because I think then going to the sea that cultural diversity and its differences should be at the forefront of our conversations. And that's the thing, Western societies are also diverse in and of itself. Western society or Western cultures is a culture in and of itself. So it does provide a diverse way of looking at things um, alongside other diversity. And when I talk about cultural diversity and its differences, I'm not just talking about ethnics. I'm also talking about diversity based on age and gender and class and religion and sexuality and indigeneity and ability and all of those particular nuanced identities intersect with each other. And it's within those nuances that we also learn to embrace diversity and its differences. And it's that that we can also locate strengths and solutions, moving to the L of inclusive societies. We can actually see our strengths and find solutions 
through the acknowledgement of such areas of diversity. We can include that as part of our shared conversation. The other key thing that I've learned in my career as both a social worker and as an academic as well is this idea of, of marginality. And traditionally, we see marginality as being outside the centre. But when I look to amazing uh, academics, especially across the globe, especially Black, Indigenous and people of colour, there are, there are there's diverse ways in which we also understand the concept of marginality. Bell Hooks talks about this idea of marginality being a site of resistance and this idea that marginality is a recognition of our choice not to fit into the status quo. So come and learn from us, come and be an ally and learn what it means to be in those marginal spaces, but also learn to also include our voices as part of our social capital, uh, as part of what we esteem as cultural capital. And I think that's really important as part of, again, that inclusive approach. For me, a lot of my work is then mobilised through social work education, how we teach the next generation of social workers to be engaged and engaging. Also, how do we create social work practice and policy, social policy and other areas of policy that also is inclusive and that also goes alongside with empirical research. And for me, a lot of that is about ensuring that we are, uh, we are privileging Indigenous knowledges and creating collective collaborations, privileging global, both local and global Indigenous ways of knowing and doing, being and becoming in the way in which we structure our societies. So as a result of then including those areas of diversity, violent structures can be reformed. That includes at the micro, the meso and the macro within our individuals, our families, our communities and broader society. And also the systems that exist within the education system, the legal system, the health systems, they also need to be nuanced and need to be further understood in the context of diversity. And this then also provides effective models of engagement to ensure that we are providing support and we are ensuring that diversity is at the forefront of that broader approach. And so I'll end it there and just encourage everyone to just further talk, uh, and I'm hoping that you'll continue to further talk about this idea of inclusive societies where diversity is part of that. Thanks so much, Yochi. There's so much, you know, to unpack and reflect on there. And I think it's really important for all of the policy domains that you mentioned, but particularly the urban and the housing policy domain, to get much better at understanding and coming to grips with diversity and also recognising the importance of interrogating where we get our sources of knowledge from as well and the importance of those Indigenous knowledge systems that you mentioned too. I know it's really difficult because a lot of urban development processes and change are dominated by the market but I think we can see in for instance the work that Warren's talking about and perhaps some of the strategies that our next speaker is going to put to us some ways that you know we can come up with other strategies aside from a solely market um, driven um, set of logics around you know urban and housing policy so um, let's come back to you in a moment and we'll turn 
to our final speaker, Shannon Burt, who's our, um, I'm not going to say our token planner, Shannon, because I'm a planner as well, but you're almost in that, in that role um, on the session this afternoon. You're certainly um, a very well-respected and experienced planner and practitioner, and I've been following your work for a while, as you know, and I've been particularly struck by the way that you think through and develop strategies that do deal with threats to the communities that you've worked in, despite, you know, the kind of limited policy and sort of planning tools available to you and particularly of late of course the threat to displacement of, um, of residents and, and communities in the far north coast due to the regional housing crisis that struck you. So let me invite you to share some of that story for us um, giving us the local planning perspective and the opportunities and the constraints that you face in local government. Look, thanks, thanks, Nicole, and thank you to all the um, speakers before me, Warren, Lena, and jo Joji. Sorry, um, that was just fantastic and very inspiring. Um, yep, and look, I do feel built a bit like the token planner today, but um, I think it's, it's it's a bit more more than that. But before I start, I would just like to also acknowledge the traditional owners of the land that I'm zooming in from today, um, the Arapal people of the Bungjalung Nation, and extend my respects to elders, past and present. Um, so with, with that, yeah, look, Nicole, I think uh, today is an interesting session. And from my perspective, um, housing affordability and availability is front of mind at the moment with the Byron community um, or the Byron Shire community, I, I should say, the, the whole community. I don't think a week goes by at the moment where there's not a, a, an article in, in the press, be it the, the news on TV at night or the written press about Byron, you know, being the most expensive, being the outlier with all sorts of um, um, issues. And, and that's the challenge, I think, at the moment and, and the tension that exists within the community. Um, I think what I'm seeing and have seen since I've been here at the council for the last six years is, is it's now a community of contrasts and challenges. And really the challenges that are emerging sort of as, as the front runners are, how do we manage growth while keeping our um, identity and culture? And how do we manage tensions between affluence and affordability? And how do we manage the divergent views that are coming to the forefront as our demography changes? And they're really sort of key pressing matters and council's just about to embark on a, a very uh, sort of shorter review of its community strategic plan, just given the way the local government elections have, have timed themselves. And I think it will be interesting because for the last two or three community strategic plans, housing, housing um, availability, affordability, environment and culture have all been sort of top of the pops. Um, and I think they will also remain there. Um, traditionally, you'll see a lot of councils with, you know, the roads, rates and rubbish as, as high items. But for, for Byron, I think it's, it's a little bit different just with the way that the community is. They're very engaged. Um, they're very intelligent and they'd like to be involved. Thanks so much, Shannon. Look, as someone who grew up in Lismore and really does love the North Coast, those housing statistics are just absolutely awful to see. And so I'm glad to hear that and to know that Byron is doing its best to come up with strategies to address that, but you're clearly going to need a lot of other support um, in that work. I can't resist 
asking Shannon one question before we let her go. And it's a question that sort of dances around my mind, you know, particularly when I when we hear from our other speakers as well. And, and in a, you know, not almost indirectly, they talk about the real richness of uh, and the, um, you know, wonderful cultural diversity in their own regions. Now, Byron um, in particular, but I think the far north coast as a, as a region has actually always attracted artists and, and I know the council's done a lot of work actually to support cultural industries, you know, even in its own industrial estate of regard, Byron Council is a leader in that actually. But with that has come gentrification that, you know, it's that, that um, you know, the flip side of arts-led um, opportunity and development also comes with something you know, other people really value that very highly and it does tend to um, you know provoke a gentrification outcome as well what are your thoughts on balancing that Shannon yeah and I think you're right it's 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 a huge challenge for for this community at the moment and I think I, I had that slide there that talked about some of the key sort of factors that are impacting our um our housing um situation at the moment and you're right you've got that gentrification and and some of that gentrification has been happening for, for the last 10 years with you know the the changes to the way people work, the changes to technology, enabling people to, to work in and out of regions. And that has supported certain industries and certain um, sectors. And you're right, this sort of that, that move up here has then taken on its own sort of, of life. Um, I'm not really sure how best we can uh, deal with it because there's some aspects of housing that sit outside local government. We aren't able to pull some of those, those levers. So the, the work that we're trying to, to, I suppose, roll out and deliver at the moment is, is work that, that is in our lane. Um, and, and it is a little bit um, sort of um, mono in what we can do in terms of planning controls, planning levers to create diversity of housing types to meet the demand for different types of people moving here. And look, some of the, the more recent types of housing that we're looking at is the sort of co-working, co-housing, um, different types of models of housing that yep, could easily uh, provide for people that want to, to live and work um, within their own um, houses or within a more communal um, sort of set up as well. The difficulty we're finding with some of the new models of housing to, to support um, and provide that sort of different price points and diversity of stock is the planning controls are a little bit too clunky and the standard definitions that we need to work with don't allow that flexibility for us to, to be able to provide a platform and a statutory framework to, to deliver that housing. Wow, that's interesting. So that'll give us something to um, to work on and, and develop. Hey everyone, Dallas Rogers here and thanks for listening to this podcast series from the Festival of Urbanism. Make sure you check out all the panel discussions at cityroadpod.org. See you next time.